verses 31 and 32 that were in the middle of our passage this morning. And as I said, I mean, if you take that golden chain of the history, really, of redemption and the outworking of God's plan in every soul, uh, when Paul says, what, what should we then say to these things? I mean, obviously it follows on in the context of Romans 8, but it's, it's really the context of the whole argument to this point. I mean, he's brought us from depravity to glorification. And it is from that vantage point, what shall we say to these things? But I want to read just these two verses. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is a giant text in the middle of a giant chapter. And in this text, Paul actually makes use of a form of argumentation. He argues from the greater to the lesser. And he's saying, if God has done this ultimate thing for us, he's not going to fail to do the rest of these things that we have just mentioned and read. And I want us then to look at this 32nd verse this evening and just collect our thoughts around it as we come to the elements and to remember our Lord. He that spared not his own son. We here are called upon to enter into Trinitarian mysteries. People mock at the church's doctrine of the Trinity. And yet I don't see anything that is unusual, anything that is too much to take in in finite creatures struggling to frame words surrounding what is taught with regard to an infinite God. The eternal generation of the Son. The procession of the Son from the Father and, and or the Spirit rather from the Father and the Son. The joy, the interpersonal relationships in the one God from eternity. We said it often, we'll keep saying it down with the heresy of the preachers who say God created man because he was lonely. I mean, what does that say of your view of God just from the starting point? It's just wrong. But the relationship between the Father and Son is not lost in the outworking of redemption. As we saw already hinted at in our studies of Romans, the agreement of the persons of the Godhead in providing redemption for God's people. And so here, this relationship, the greatness of it, the purity, the depth, the power, the infinite nature of the love between the persons of the Father and Son and Spirit. And that it is this beloved Son that is sent. We come then and read, He that spared not His own Son. It is from this vantage point of that infinite and perfect relationship 
that we're to take in the words he spared not. Parents may spare their children. Whatever circumstances may surround the offense as it were. They may at times spare them the fullest measure of punishment. There can be wisdom in that at times. There can be folly in that at times. Well, we pray for grace as parents, do we not? Judges may at times spare. We're warned in Scripture about pronouncing the guilty innocent, justifying the unrighteous. That's a, a lesson in itself on the nature of justification. Condemning the innocent. The pronouncement doesn't make any change in the character of the person. It's just incumbent upon the judge to get the pronouncements right. But there are times in which even a judge might spare. We can, and I think would just cause, examine some of that in our current context, but leaving those sad current thoughts aside, I was on a jury one time where there was a man, it was the third trial. There had been two previous mistrials. It had come to superior court. It was a difficult case. The man was technically guilty, but he was practically innocent. And I won't get into the details of the case, but this jury finally, understanding two previous juries couldn't reach a conclusion, two days for us to wrestle through that conclusion, convicted him. The judge actually left an ongoing trial and came into our jury room and thanked us for a verdict and then was quite lenient in his pronouncement of punishment upon this technically guilty but practically innocent person. He spared the full measure of the law. In this divine courtroom, God could not if he is to bring us to his presence, he could not spare his son. There would be, as it were, every motive. It's hard for us, it's dangerous for us to impute our emotions and feelings and so forth to the infinite being. But for the Father to set aside perfect and infinite love for his son and love for us with a desire to bring us justly to his presence he spared not his own son strict justice demands were met what Paul states negatively, he then in the text states positively. He didn't spare him. He delivered him up. He gave him over to the demands of his righteous law and our transgressions of it. There are other ways the New Testament describes this. In that giant text in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin 
for us. And he phrases it in Galatians that Christ was made a curse for us. He was delivered up. He was not spared. There was no amelioration of his law. There was no restraint upon his enemies. You think of all the forces of hell. All the hatred and the rejection of sinners. Hebrews phrases it, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. God did not restrain any of that. But again, those were only the lesser things. The attending circumstances of the punishment of God's own holy law. You think of the ways, the parties that delivered up Jesus, if you will. Judas delivered him up for money. Pilate, preeminent politician, delivered him up for fear of the Jews. The Jews, Pilate knew, had delivered him up for envy. The Father delivered him up out of love. But it says, not only was he not spared and delivered up, but there was an object in view. He delivered him up for us all. If I can read you just some of the words of John Murray in his excellent commentary in Romans. It is only from the perspective of damnation vicariously born. Damnation executed with the sanctions of unrelenting justice that we should be able to apprehend the wonder and taste the sweetness of that love that passes knowledge. Love eternally to be explored, but eternally inexhaustible. Isn't that part of what we've studied and mentioned so often with regard to idols and the true God. There'll never be a point in glory in which God will say, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more of myself. And in this case, as we're considering, nothing more of my love that I can show unto you. From this vantage point, damnation vicariously endured, we begin to see something of the love of God to our souls. That argument from the greater to the lesser. He spared not his own son. And then, not take time to wrestle with the debates as it were, but delivered him up for us all. This company is obviously the one spoken of in that golden chain, foreknown down to glorified and I failed to mention this morning even the tents glorified. There's a certainty. There's no need to bother with the, the niceties, as it were, of grammar and use a future tense. It's done because God has willed it, has purposed it. We will not fall short of it. Those we read of in chapter 5, 
taken from that first head and placed in that second head. But we read, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The conclusion is put in the form of a rhetorical question to emphasize the impossibility and the unthinkableness of any other conclusion. If God has not spared His Son, if Christ has endured all that we know He has endured, nothing will fail of what He has accomplished. Nothing will fail to be applied. And so tonight as we come and we anticipate glory, and we can with that mixture of emotion, if you will, with sorrow and solemnity at the cost of our redemption, and yet be overwhelmed with joy that God didn't spare that cost in order to bring us to Himself. So tonight, let us marvel. Let us meditate afresh on this one who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, I ask you tonight if you would take your